So that is a day in the life of Clayton, all right? That's just a normal, regular, daily, weekly conversation with those two. Uh, I, I find myself caught in the middle of them and kind of bouncing from one of them to the next while they just pepper me with things like that. I mean, that, that's a regular conversation. It's, it's a lot like kind of being caught in a pickle in baseball, if you, if you get the reference, and, and you're just kind of bouncing, you're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And in baseball, though, like in a real pickle, if you know what I'm talking about, like people are coming in from all over the field, right, to get in line, to be a part of this pickle, to try to get this one guy out. And uh, we, we've grown up around baseball. I played baseball. My kids play baseball. And uh, my, my boys are getting older now, though. And the runner is rarely surviving the pickle these days. I'm just, I'm just that's just the way it is. When, you know, when they're younger, they throw the ball all over the place and people can't catch, you know, and things like that. But now that my kids are older, uh, their teammates, they themselves, they're, they're not surviving the pickle, right? They're, they're running back and forth and kids are flying in from all over the place. It's like nine versus one. And they try to get this kid out. And actually that's a lot like what we see happens in Daniel chapter 11. The people of God, the nation of Israel, they're in this pickle. They've got kingdoms and kings all around them that are waging war against each other and with Israel. And Israel finds himself in a pickle. And God tells Daniel all about it hundreds of years in advance. And so turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Let me review and just kind of catch you up here just real quick. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the names you've probably heard of. Uh, some of their other friends from this extended royal family in Jerusalem are taken into captivity by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. We saw in Daniel chapter one that it is God by his sovereign will brings Babylon against Jerusalem, takes these people into captivity, destroys Jerusalem, takes some captives into Jerusalem, or into Babylon rather, King Nebuchadnezzar's the, the king, Persia takes over. We've got kings like Darius and Cyrus are some of the famous kings of Persia that rule over Persia when uh, the people of God, Israel, is still in captivity. And it's during these uh, captivity years that Daniel has these visions from God. Uh, a lot of these visions are related to and telling him about the suffering that his people are going to go through hundreds of years later, but as you've heard us say, and as you've seen over the course of the series, this suffering and the leader that will rise up at the end of this suffering is all a picture. It's a foreshadowing. It's a type of what is to come for the people of God at the very end of time. And so we're studying this book because this book gives us some insight. It lets us kind of peek behind the curtain and see the spiritual battle that's taking place in the heavenly realm. The battle that saves Satan is waging for your heart, for your kids' hearts, for your grandkids' hearts. Satan is waging a battle with you to take you out, to take you down, to steal worship from the one true God and to ruin your life. And we are reading this book and studying this book. We've done it verse by verse, chapter by chapter to get some insight into this battle so that you and I today as the church might be faithful followers of Jesus. Because I believe, as you've heard me say, there is a time of persecution that is coming. And, and you, you, you probably are aware that the temperature is turning up ever so slightly in our country against and for Christians and what we believe. 
And so you and I must be faithful followers of Jesus. And there's probably no better book to read about how to be faithful worshipers of the one true God than Daniel in this captivity. And it's in this captivity that he sees these visions that, that we've been studying. And so we've said that if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we need the inspired word of God, not, not pithy inspirational messages that just always make us feel good. We need the inspired word of God to help us and to enable us to be faithful worshipers of Jesus. And so a couple of weeks ago, I told you this, that um, we, after kind of going through this series, uh, I felt led, our, our leadership felt led for us over the next 20 years to preach through about three books of the Bible a year so that we might preach through the entire Bible in 20 years. And so I hope you'll join us. The 20 year vision is to preach about Jesus, is to worship Jesus, is to make disciples of Jesus. And we're gonna go verse by verse through the scripture over 20 years so that hopefully prayerfully by the end of that 20 years, if Jesus has not returned, uh, we will have preached through the entire Bible. And I'd love for you to join us on this journey. Now, as we go back to Daniel, Daniel, remember, is apocalyptic literature. It is not just about what happened, history. It's about what always happens. It's about what's happening today and the battle that's waging for your soul and my soul. And it's about what's going to happen in the end. And that's what apocalypse literature is. It wakes us up to the battle that is waging for your soul and my soul. It wakes us up to the battle that is waging in the heavenly realm between Satan and his effort to wage war against Jesus and to still worship from Jesus. And last week in Daniel chapter 10, Brandon said this, he talked about in Daniel 10, we, we saw how there's this spirit prince, this demon prince working in and through Babylon and Persia. And we talked about how every nation, every leader, all, all of these nations and all, all the things that, that rise up and to use the words of Daniel, to ri that rise up out of the earth. We talked about that several weeks ago. Everything that rises up out of the earth that rises up out of you and I, it's a counterfeit to God's creation. And so there's this battle waging between the counterfeit and between what God has created. And it's this satanic demonic spirit. It's these demon princes over culture and governments that will try to steer and to force and take our worship away from the one true God. And so we saw that last week, that there was a demon prince over Babylon and over Persia and the, the prince of Israel, this angel that was waging war against these demon princes over Babylon and Persia to protect the people of God. We saw all that last week. And so as I thought about it this past week, and I, and I heard this movement, church planning movement leader from Iran. And in case you didn't know, there's a great church planning movement taking place in Iran right now. You, you would never know about it, but, but it's happening right now. And one of those movement leaders from Iran said this about America. He said, the West, America is under a satanic lullaby that it's the demon prince over America and the way that he wages war against God and the people of God is not in some satanic, outright, obvious way. It's by, shh, go back to sleep. Just stay right there in your comfort zone. Don't get out of your comfort zone. You're gonna be okay. Shh, just go back 
to sleep. Man, yeah, keep making more money. Shh, uh, just keep, keep worrying about that, that house that you want to buy. Shh, keep, keep playing all the sports and, and, and working the long hours. Just keep yourself busy. Shh, just go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. And I heard that this week and I was like, oh my gosh, that is so true. And it's so accurate depiction of the church in the West. We're asleep. And, and we've said already in this book in Daniel that part of reading this book and part of what apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature does for us is it wakes us up to the battle that is waging for your soul and my soul. It wakes us up. And so my prayer is once again today that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God will wage war in you and in your heart this morning to wake you up from the satanic lullaby that the demon prince of America has us under that continually says to us and to the church, Shh, just go back to sleep. So my heart, my prayer is that we will wake up out of this comfortable Laodicean sleepy spirit that we find ourselves in. I refuse to give my life to some sort of all-inclusive cruise ship or resort. That is not who we are. We will not be comfortable here. We will preach God's word. We will worship Jesus, follow Jesus, make disciples of Jesus. We're going to cause some trouble for the kingdom of God. And my prayer is, is that you will wake up and I will wake up and together we will cause some trouble for the kingdom of God. In Acts, it said about the early church and it was said of the disciples that they were turning the world upside down. And man, I would love for that to be true of us, that we are turning the world upside down. So my hope, my prayer is that you will wake up and that we will cause some trouble for the kingdom of God. So let's go, Daniel chapter 11. Let me give you a little bit of an intro to this chapter. There are 135 prophecies that are literally fulfilled already in Daniel chapter 11, verse one through 35. So in the first 35 verses of this chapter, you are going to read about 135 prophecies that were literally fulfilled. Daniel is prophesying them hundreds of years in advance and they come true, all of them, 135 of them by verse 35. These historical details that are set forth in this prophecy, they are astounding. One scholar said this of Daniel 11, the detail of the history as presented provides one of the most remarkable predictive portions of all the scripture. Chuck Swindoll, famous pastor and author said this, this is one of the most amazing chapters in all of the scripture. So I'm just telling you this because we're about to get into some minute specific detail and some history here for you and I, but it was prophecy to Daniel. And so as you're reading this, you're like, Clayton, bro, uh, what's up with the history lesson today at church? It wasn't for Daniel. Just keep that in your mind. Daniel is prophesying everything that we're about to read hundreds of years in advance with specific detail and with extreme accuracy, so much so that chapters like Daniel chapter nine and Daniel chapter 11 have literal, uh, liberal Bible scholars shaking in their boots. Because if this is written when the scripture says it was written and when Christian scholars say it was written, then there is no other option than to say God exists and this is his word. But if we could prove, if someone could prove that this was written later, then it would discount, it could discount everything that we believe. The power of God, the authority of God's word. And so that's why scholars have said, even though what we're about to read is gonna get a little laborious, it's gonna get a little tedious, I'm, I'm just telling you right now ahead of time, 
This is one of the most amazing chapters in all of the scripture because of the detailed prophecy here. One liberal Bible critic said this, if this chapter were indeed the utterance of a prophet in the Babylonian exile, nearly 400 years before the events which are here so enigmatically and yet so minutely depicted, then this revelation would be the most unique and perplexing in all of the scripture. It would stand absolutely and abnormally alone as an abandonment of the limitations of all else which has ever been foretold. And I'm, again, I'm setting this up for you because I'm about to go into like school mode, okay, and tell you and preach to you about some history that is history to us, but it was prophecy for Daniel. And this is some of the most amazing prophecy you will ever encounter. That's what scholars have, have told us. This is some of the most amazing prophecy you will ever read in your lifetime. So you ready for this? I'm not sure you are. <laughs> You're gonna have to wake up a little bit more, all right? We need the spirit of God to wake us up uh, so that we can engage and uh, make sure we don't miss what's going on and the importance of what's happening here in Daniel chapter 11. So open up the app, the City Church Lubbock, follow along with me, click message notes, the verses, the points are all there. And there's a chart there, there's a table there that we've uh, made for you where it lists the verse, the, the, the prophecy, and then in the next column it lists the, pro the, the history where it was literally fulfilled to just kind of help you because this is going to be overwhelming, I promise. Uh, and, and so that table should help you. And that's kind of what I'm going to use uh, for the portion of our time here together where, where we do this. And then at the end, we'll kind of wrap this up with some takeaways from this. Okay. So 11, starting in verse two, uh, because 11.1 in many manuscripts and translations uh, is at the end of 10. But in my Bible, possibly in yours, uh, it starts with 11 verse two here. So verse two, now then I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth, far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, this prophecy we have already covered in previous chapters. This is talking about the Greek empire, Alexander the Great's rule, who will accomplish everything he sets out to do. His kingdom is broken apart. If you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. It's given to his four generals because his sons die at an early age. And so he has no heir to give his kingdom to. And so the Greek empire ends up being divided into four, four generals take over one each part. But here's what begins to happen in the following verses. These four kingdoms kind of coalesce into two divisions, the kingdom of the North and the kingdom of the South. And right in the middle of the kingdom of the North and the kingdom of the South is what? Palestine, Israel. And that's where the people of God reside. And so here is the reason we're studying this and the reason why this matters is because God is telling Daniel, there's a period of time coming where Israel will be caught in a pickle. You're gonna be surrounded by people who are going to war with each other and war with you. You're going to be caught in a pickle between the kingdom of the North and the kingdom of the South. So these two divisions are referred to as the Ptolemaic 
kingdom or dynasty and the Seleucid kingdom or dynasty. And they receive, again, special attention because of their important relationship to Israel because Palestine, Israel is located between them and was controlled first by the Ptolemies and then later by the Seleucids. Now what follows here in verse five through about 35 comprises prophecy and fulfilled history of the ongoing conflicts between these two divisions, these two kingdoms. <clears throat> the Greek empire, these divisions of the Greek empire, the Ptolemaic Egyptian king of the south and the Seleucid or Syrian king of the north. From the death of Alexander, so that's where we're at right now, what we've read through so far in verse four, from the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC, until by the end of this, the reign of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we've already talked about before. Antiochus would reign from about 175 to 164 BC. So you've got the kingdom of the north, you've got the kingdom of the south, and you've got Jerusalem right in the middle caught in this pickle. And it's from the Seleucid kingdom of the north that would eventually appear this evil Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was the little horn of chapter seven and eight, if you remember that reference. All right, let's go. Verse five, the king of the south, <clears throat> the king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. This king of the south is Ptolemy I. He's this king of the south. He ruled from 323 BC to 285 BC. And just as the scripture says here in verse five, one of his officials, one of his commanders, Seleucus, becomes king of the north and would begin to dominate. Verse six, some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north uh, to secure the alliance but she will lose her influence over him and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. So verse six says that they will make an alliance and this alliance will be formed as happened oftentimes in these days and later, this alliance is formed through this marriage. And this marriage is between uh, Ptolemy II's daughter, Bernice, uh, and this happens in 250 BC. That's when this was fulfilled. Verse seven. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. He, or when he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him along with priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterward, he will leave the king of the north alone. Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. So her relative in verse seven, other translations say a branch from her roots shall arise. This is Ptolemy's stepson, Ptolemy III, who succeeds, in, who succeeds him in 246 BC. And it says this, he will come against the king of the north and prevail. Ptolemy III did invade Syria and ends up conquering Antioch. Verse 10. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then, in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. 
After the army, army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. It says his sons will wage war. This is describing this ongoing conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the king of the north and the king of the south. But it's from this point that the Ptolemies in Egypt, the kingdom of the south, begin to weaken and the Seleucids in the north in Syria begin to dominate. And we see that here in 10 through 13. Verse 14, at that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. Violent men from among your own people will join them in the fulfillment of this vision, but they will not succeed. It says there will be a general uprising against this king of the south. And in this vision, Daniel sees some of his own people are, are joining against and, and joining this fight against the king of the south. And this is when some of the Jews revolt did revolt against this Southern king. But verse 14 says they will fail and they were crushed by General Scopus of Egypt in the South. And that's the fulfillment of verse 14. Verse 15, then the king of the North will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the South will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. Antiochus III ended up defeating General Scopus in Pallenium Paneum, rather, in 198 BC. Verse 16, the king of the north will march onward, unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. Antiochus III conquers Palestine. Verse 17, he will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. It says that he will give this daughter in order to overthrow this kingdom. And this happened when Antiochus III gave his daughter Cleopatra, not the famous one that you are probably thinking of, but he gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V in marriage. And Antiochus III hoped that his offspring would rule over Egypt and give him further power. But Cleopatra, his daughter, supported her husband, Ptolemy V, instead of her father. So the plan failed. Verse 18, after this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. So Antiochus III has some initial success. He conquers these, uh, th these coastland areas, but it says this commander shall come. And this was fulfilled when the Roman and Greek troops joined together and defeated Antiochus. Verse 19, he will take refuge in his own fortress, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. Antiochus will stumble and fall. He signs a treaty with Rome as he's being defeated and he ends up being killed in Syria in 188 BC. He stumbled and fell. Verse 20, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor, but after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. He sends out, he has a successor who sends out this tax collector, Seleucus IV, collect taxes, had to collect taxes in order to pay off Rome. And he sent out his tax collector to do so. And the tax collector ended up poisoning him. And his reign was very brief. Verse 21, the next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. 
He will, sh- he will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery and intrigue. So the next to come to power is a despicable man after Antiochus III. This is talking about the emergence of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who brought major conflict to Israel. He's the little horn of Daniel chapter seven and Daniel chapter eight. And it says he was not in line for royal succession. And so he took over with flattery and intrigue. And that's exactly what happened. Antiochus Epiphanes was not the rightful heir, but he did pay off people in order to support him. Verse 22, before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. This is talking about how Antiochus Epiphanes would defeat the Egyptians. Verse 23, with deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of of followers. This alliance that's made that he acts deceitfully with is with Ptolemy the sixth. He makes a covenant with him, but then he reneges on the cover on the covenant and attacks him anyways. Verse 24, without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land. He will distribute among his followers, the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will only last for a short while. And Antiochus Epiphanes did reinvade Egypt. He didn't keep his word, but this victory is short lived. Verse 25, then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive each other. But it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. From within your own household, it says. See, Ptolemy VI's own counselors encouraged him to go against, to go to war against Antiochus IV, and he ended up being defeated. Then these two kings make a covenant. They're making a peace treaty so that uh, they can regain control of Egypt, but neither king had intentions of keeping this covenant. You can see that God has even planned the table that these two kings would come together and form this covenant. That's how involved and that's how sovereign God is over all of history. Verse 28, the king of the north will then return home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself against the people of the holy covenant, doing much damage before continuing his journey on Antiochus his way return home. It says he'll, he'll return to his land and he will set himself against the people of the Holy Covenant. As Antiochus Epiphanes returns north to returns to Syria, he slaughters some Jews on the way and the Jews would begin their revolt at this time. Verse 29, then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the South, but this time the result will be different. He returns South, he reinvades Egypt, but he's defeated this time. Verse 30, for warships from Western coastlands will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home, but he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. So some Romans come and they once again join the the Ptolemies and they force Antiochus to retreat. Well, Antiochus is angry, he is mad. And what do you do when you're angry and mad? You say stupid things 
and you do stupid things. And Antiochus, on his return home, his pride has been hurt. He's angry that he's lost. And he vents his anger, it says, he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant. Then that's exactly what happened. Antiochus' forces plundered Jerusalem. They killed and martyred tens and tens of thousands of Jews. They would reward those who forsook their covenant with God. And that's exactly what happened. Some Jews, because of the persecution, would turn from God and would side with Antiochus. Verse 31, his army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Antiochus forces took over the temple. They stopped the daily sacrifices and in the temple, they set up what was called the abomination that causes desecration. That's what the scripture refers to it as when they would set up an altar in the temple, sacrifice a pig to Zeus and stop the daily sacrifices of a perfect lamb that would die in the place for your sin to atone for your sin. And that's called the abomination that causes desecration. And that's exactly what Antiochus did. He would sacrifice a pig, an unclean animal to the Jews in the temple to Zeus. Verse 32, he will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. Some Jews will accommodate, they will turn, they will give in, but others who know their God will not, and they will stand firm. Verse 33, wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and Robbed. This is talking about the Jews who would die as martyrs, remaining faithful to their God during the Maccabean revolt. Verse 34, during these persecutions, little help will arrive and many will join them, but will not be sincere. Some will give in and will not be sincere followers of the one true God. Verse 35, and some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end for the appointed time is still to come. This is describing the heroic martyrdom of the rebels. And it says this will continue until the time of the end. This is referring to the end of Antiochus's reign when he would die at the appointed time. Verse 36 through the end. The king will do as he pleases exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every God, even blaspheming the God of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors or for the God loved by women or for any other God, for he will boast that he is greater than them all. Instead of these, he will worship the God of fortresses, a God his ancestors never knew and lavish on him gold and silver and precious stones and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign God's help, he will attack the strongest of fortresses. He will honor those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Then at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. The king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers and a vast navy. He, he will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. He will enter the glorious land of Israel and many nations will fall, but Moab, Edom and the best part of Ammon will escape. 
He will conquer many countries and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants. But then news from the east and the north will alarm him and he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate Menary. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. So about of this king, Daniel says, or he's seeing that this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself. He will blaspheme God. He will rise in power. He will honor those that submit to him. He will sweep through with great success and conquer many lands. He will worship the God of fortresses. He will have success, but it will be short-lived. And Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, fulfilled most of these prophecies here at the end of Daniel 36 through 45. Antiochus Epiphanes worshiped the God of fortresses, that is power and military strength. He worshiped the God of state and government. You see, in case you didn't realize, worshiping the state, devotion to the state can be satanic. Antiochus, an evil man, worshiped the God of military and the God of strength, the God of war, the God of the state. Antiochus Epiphanes exalted himself above God, above the truth of God, above God's word. He committed the abomination that causes desecration. He persecuted Jews. He died suddenly. But some of the details here do not match Antiochus Epiphanes. A lot of them do, but not all of them. This says that this king will die on the glorious holy mountain. That is the temple mount in Jerusalem. It is, however, the location of the fall, the death of the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon when Jesus returns. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 16 and Revelation chapter 19. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, we learn that the Antichrist to come during our time of great stress that is still to come, during this tribulation that is to come, that this antichrist will mimic much of the life, reign and deception and persecution and sudden end of Antiochus Epiphanes. So here's what scholars believe, that these last verses here, 36 through 45, are foreshadowing a Antiochus Epiphanes-like ruler or leader who will rise to power, who will persecute the people of God, but it's not Antiochus. He dies somewhere different. There's some details here that don't match up. And so we've been talking about Antiochus IV, but now there's a transition here to talking about a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of Antiochus that is still to come who will rise to power. Second Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of lawlessness. Revelation calls him the beast who will rise up This is the little horn that we've been talking about who will rise to power in the end and persecute the people of God, but he will meet a sudden end just like Antiochus Epiphanes did when Jesus returns and throws him into the lake of fire forever. Now, I know you're probably here like, bro, that, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of history. Um, what's the point of it, really? I, I mean, uh, what, what, what's the point of studying all this and talking about the, well, well, one, remember we said, this is history for you and I. Remember, it was prophecy for Daniel. None of this had happened yet. This is hundreds of years. This is all, of, everything we just talked about, Daniel prophesied hundreds of years in advance. 
with the most specific detail. So, so here's my first takeaway for you. It's this, is that the author is my authority. The author is my authority. Who, who am I talking about? The author of scripture. The author of scripture is clearly God. No one but God alone could predict the future with this kind of accuracy. 135 historical predictions that have literally been fulfilled. This is the work of God. Jesus in Matthew 24 called Daniel a prophet. Not, not a historian who wrote after the fact. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, who rose from the grave, proving that he's the son of God, said Daniel was a prophet, which means he saw things that God spoke to him and showed him things about the future. And Jesus said, Daniel was a prophet, confirming that this is the word of God and that Daniel prophesied. He's not a historian, he was a prophet. And it's people like Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist who will magnify themselves over God himself and the word of God. We learn about Antiochus and about this Antichrist here in Daniel chapter 11, that they will do as they please. It is satanic to do as you please. To think whatever you wanna think, to love whatever you wanna love. We, Christian, we don't do as we please. We deny ourselves and we follow Jesus. We don't stand over God's word and criticize it. We submit ourselves under God's word and we obey it. That's what Christians do. It's a satanic spirit that will lead you to do whatever you please and to believe that whatever you think and whatever opinion you must have is right. That's satanic. Antiochus, it's the Antichrist who does whatever he pleases. Tim Keller said this about the scripture. If you wanna pick and choose what you like and don't like in the Bible, you've got a figment of your imagination. You've got an idol. It doesn't exist. We don't pick and choose what we like and don't like in God's word. We don't pick and choose what we agree with or, or disagree with or what must have changed. It must have changed in all of these years. God must have changed. That's a figment of your imagination. That's an idol. We, we don't come to God's word and, and pick and choose. We submit ourselves to God's word. I, I, I've, I've heard this progression and it goes like this. Ignorance breeds arrogance and arrogance breeds resistance. And this is true in almost every area of life, but it's certainly true with the word of God. Our ignorance of God's word and God's ways breeds arrogance. I, then, then I know what, because I'm not submitting myself to, to God's word, then I'll do as I please and whatever I think must be right. It breeds arrogance. And then when I am confronted with God's word, it breeds resistance. No, 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 no. That, that can't be true. That, that can't be right. Ignorance breeds arrogance and arrogance breeds resistance. That's true with history and it's true with scripture. Verse 32, it says this, that the people who know their God will resist this evil leader. 
And listen, that's true for you and I today. It's the people who know their God, who know God's word, who will be able to resist the devil and the devil will flee from them as they know and as they quote God's word because they know their God. They will stand firm till the end. They will persevere. They will endure whatever comes their way because they know their God and they will resist the temptation. They will resist the destruction. They will resist the, shh, go back to sleep because they know their God. Second takeaway is this, God's prophecy always becomes our history. God's prophecy always becomes our history. In verse 35, look, that it says this about Antiochus, that this Antiochus will reign and this persecution will, will happen for the appointed time is still to come. God is saying, I've got all of this under control and Antiochus is going to, to rise up. This persecution is going to happen hundreds of years from now, but at the appointed time, at the time I've set, his rule will end and this time of wrath against your people will be over. What God is saying here is that I am in control of all of history, past, present, in future, I've got this. And in spite of present appearances, Daniel, and in spite of the prophecy that I'm giving you about the pickle your people are going to find themselves in, I'm in control, I'm with you through all of it. You see, God is always working in and through prophecy and history to take our eyes off the counterfeits and to get them on Christ. This is what God is always doing. God is always, watch this, exposing the counterfeits and exalting Christ. And this is the point of prophecy and this is the point of history. When we look back and it's the point of the prophecy that we have about the return of Jesus. It's to expose the counterfeits and to exalt his son, Jesus. So God is always working in all things. That's what Daniel 11 teaches. He's working in all things to expose these counterfeit kings and to exalt the one true king. That's what God is always doing. And he's doing it in your life, in my life, right now, in this moment. He's wanting to expose the lesser kings, the counterfeit kings in your life and exalt the one true king, his son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place for your sin. It's today, Palm Sunday, that we remember and we celebrate our king who rode into Jerusalem and they laid palm branches on the street and they said, hail the king of the Jews. He's the king who would rule on David's throne forever. He's the one true king. And he laid down his life for you. He died on the cross to pay the fine for your sin and my sin. And he rose again three days later, conquering sin and death and proving that he's the king of the world and he's God in the flesh. Your king died for you. That's the kind of king I can serve and love and follow and worship. A king who dies for me in my place for my sin that I might be set free from my sin and receive eternal life. And if you have not submitted yourself to this King, King Jesus, if you've not given your life to King Jesus, I would invite you to do so today. Give your life to Jesus. 
that you might be forgiven of your sin, made right with God and go to heaven when you die. There's only one way. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to have your sin forgiven. And that's through King Jesus, the one true King. Every other King is a counterfeit lesser King. And many of us have been giving our lives to lesser Kings. I'd invite you to repent and to turn from that sin and to give your life to the one true King. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to King Jesus today. You know, what's interesting about this prophecy is that it's a prophecy of hundreds of years of struggle and suffering for the people of God that are caught between these Kings of the North and these Kings of the South that are caught in this pickle. And God is saying, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, I'm with you. And so here's my, here's my last takeaway. It's this, it's that God's people suffer with hope. God's people suffer with hope. This prophetic suffering that Daniel is seeing for his people is actually a foreshadowing of the suffering that's to come for us, for the people of God at the time of the end, the tribulation that's to come. Now, I don't know if you'll be alive for it or I'll be alive for it. We, we don't know that. But I do believe, as, as I've told you before, that the church will go through the tribulation. I'm what's called a, a post-trib. I believe that Jesus will return after the tribulation. That's called historic premillennialism. We've talked about all this. Brandon and Mark have joked about it and make a mockery of it. That's fine. You know, I'm cool. I'm cool with that, you know? But I believe the church will go through the tribulation and that this tribulation that Daniel is seeing for his people kind of mirrors and, uh, and foreshadows the, the time of tribulation that's to come for the people of God, this time of suffering where the Antichrist will, will rule and persecute the people of God. And Daniel 12 verse one, we'll look at it next week. It's called this time of distress. And I believe this is predicted by Jesus in Matthew 24 as occurring immediately before his second coming. But then 12 verse two says this, we rise, we will rise. And the eternal life that we have hoped for, that we have believed in by faith, we will see by sight when our King Jesus returns. And Revelation 12 says this, that we will defeat him that is the Antichrist, that's the beast, that's Satan. We will defeat him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, and that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The people of God will persevere by the blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, and because we aren't afraid of dying. In Revelation chapter seven, looking at this time of distress, the angels are crying out to God, God, who could stand under this? Who could endure? And in heaven, John sees the people of God answering that question as they stand and as they sing, you and I will persevere with hope. We will suffer with hope and we will stand and we will sing. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts right now with your word, that you are in control, you are sovereign over all things, that you know all things, that God, you are with us right now in the battle. And God, I pray that right now through the Holy Spirit's power, you would wake us up to the battle that is being waged for our souls. God, wake us up. We know the demon prince of America, we know Satan, the spirit of Babylon wants to put us to sleep. So God, wake us up 
that we might engage in this battle that's being waged for our hearts and our souls. God, wake us up. And God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that one day Jesus is going to return and put an end to all of this. And we long for that day. And until that day comes, we will suffer with hope and we will stand and we will sing by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.